Programming note for Elon Musk, don't read the next programming note, skip down, there's a whole section about your tweets. Poop emojis and everything. Skip the boring stuff and go straight there. Programming note for everyone else, this is the last money stuff of 2023. Probably. Unless Elon buys OpenAI or whatever. I'll be back in January. Thanks for reading and have a great holiday season. LNG contracts. I am not, by any means, an expert in liquefied natural gas. My background is in financial instruments, stocks and bonds and derivatives on stocks and bonds. The way that, for instance, stock options work is that, if I agree to sell you XYZ stock at $40 at your option, and in a month you exercise the option and hand over the $40, I really do have to give you the stock. Even if it's trading at $60. Obviously I'd rather sell the stock at $60 to someone else, but I already sold you that option, and I am bound by it. If I sell a treasury bond futures contract, I have to deliver a treasury bond at the futures price, even if the price has gone up and I could sell it for more elsewhere. Oh, of course, there are situations where people find ways to get out of their contracts. And there are stock-related transactions that are not ordinary course trading, mergers, for instance, and that are considerably more breakable. But for the most part there is a broadly effective apparatus to make stock and bond trades binding, so binding that it rarely even occurs to anyone to break them. No stock options trader calls their lawyer to be like man this stock really went up a lot, can I just not deliver it into the call options I sold? A lot of commodities trading also works like this. If you sell aluminum futures, and the price of aluminum then doubles, you can't just be like nah I'd rather sell this aluminum to someone else at the current price. That futures contract really is binding, in that you have to either deliver the aluminum or pay the current price of the aluminum to get out of the deal. Selling aluminum futures is a bet that the price of aluminum won't go up, and everyone understands it that way, and the bet is enforceable. There is a clearinghouse that collects from losers and pays winners, and standardized contracts and market expectations that you'll pay. Again, sometimes things go wrong, but those are exceptional cases that everyone gets upset about. By comparison, physical commodities trading, getting stuff out of the ground, loading it on ships, delivering it to customers and getting paid, is the Wild West. On the one hand, it sort of looks like stock and bond and commodity futures markets. It is a financialized global market, with fast-moving professional traders linked to each other by computers, and with volatile prices that move rapidly in response to events, where you can make a fortune by betting the right way. On the other hand, the stuff you are trading does not live on a computer, you are moving ships around, and if you say a ship will go to one place and it instead goes to another place, there is only so much anyone can do about it. There is no clearinghouse, no way to just adjust the trades on the computer to make everything right. The stuff either goes somewhere, or it goes somewhere else. And so if you are a liquefied natural gas trader company, and you sell LNG in long-term fixed-price contracts that require you to deliver a ship full of LNG to a specific port every month at a fixed price, and then the price of LNG goes up a lot, and you'd rather ignore your contract and sell your ship full of LNG to someone else at the current higher price, I mean, empirically, that does seem to happen. The conditions are favorable for opportunism. There's no central clearinghouse enforcing any rules, so if you hose one customer all that happens is that that customer is mad at you, and sues, you can keep trading with everybody else. Instead of standardized futures contracts enforced by a central clearinghouse, every deal is a complicated bilateral negotiation, 
so even when the customer sues, you can probably point to some provision in the contract, or some unusual circumstance, that justifies you not delivering the gas. It's a global commodity market, so, 1. It's easy for you to find a new customer at the current higher price and, 2. Even if the old customer is mad at you, they will probably keep buying gas from you if your price is 1 cent below everyone else's. LNG prices have been pretty volatile, driven by things like COVID-19 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, so it's entirely possible that you agreed to a contract at a low price, and now the price is high, and you are tempted to break it. And so we have talked a few times about Venture Global LNG, an LNG producer in Louisiana that entered into long-term fixed-price contracts to sell its gas to customers like BP and Shell, and then, when LNG prices went up a lot, decided to instead sell its gas on the spot market to other buyers at much higher prices. The jilted customers have complained bitterly to everyone who will listen, and have gone to arbitration to force Venture Global to give them the gas, and Venture Global has been like nya nya, see you in court, technically our contract allows us to do this. They might even be right. The contract apparently requires Venture Global to start fulfilling the long-term contracts when its production plant is complete, and the plant is not yet complete. It is complete enough to produce LNG and sell it on the spot market, sure, but it is not completely complete. I joked that the facility is just about finished, but they, didn't, like, paint one last rivet. Favorable for opportunism. Today Bloomberg Stephen Stepchinsky and Faye Mangi have a story about how Gunvor Group Limited and any spa entered into long-term LNG supply contracts with Pakistan, obligating them to deliver gas to Pakistan at fixed prices over multi-year terms, and then started missing deliveries when the spot price of LNG shot up. Pakistan went to them with reasonable complaints like we really need this gas, and we signed a binding contract obligating you to deliver it to us at a fixed price, and the suppliers largely came up with excuses that do technically seem to work. With the result that Pakistan had to go buy gas in the spot market at much higher prices, and Gunvor and Eni got to go sell gas in the spot market at much higher prices. What sort of excuses? Well, a big one is force majeure. If the plants producing the LNG break down and the suppliers can't get the gas, they don't have to deliver it. This is not, you might think, an excuse that would allow for much opportunism. If the plants break down and the suppliers can't get the gas, then they can't resell it on the spot market for a profit. But that's not quite right. Benvor cited a force majeure, a legal term for an unavoidable event that makes it impossible to fulfill a contract. Specifically it blamed an outage at a plant in Equatorial Guinea, a tiny, hydrocarbon-rich Central African dictatorship. That justification from Gunvor, as well as the earlier statement by any about production in Egypt, took advantage of another part of Pakistan's contracts. Unlike other LNG deals, which stipulate where a supplier will obtain the gas it's selling, the Pakistani agreement said shipments could come from anywhere within Gunvor's and any's global portfolios. Pakistani officials have said they believe this would insulate them from disruptions, by allowing the companies to provide any gas they could source. In their communications with Pakistan, people with knowledge of the discussions say, Gunvor and any turned that logic on its head, arguing that because no source was specified, a disruption anywhere gave them the right to cancel delivery. Problems in Equatorial Guinea therefore qualified as a force majeure, even though Gunvor rarely shipped gas from the plant to Pakistan. This was a novel interpretation of contract terms. It is not typically sufficient for a seller to simply say, my unrelated project on the other side of the world that has no connection to this contract is down, and therefore that's force majeure under this contract, says Jessica Ham, 
a special counsel at U.S. law firm Baker Botts who's advised clients on LNG deals. The buyer might have the ability to claim that this event is unrelated, and it doesn't actually prevent you from performing, which is a key element of a force majeure claim. Intuitively, if Benvor has plans to source 100 cargoes of LNG and one plant anywhere in the world shuts down and it can only get 99 cargoes, it can say whoops, that was Pakistan's cargo, it's impossible for us to get it to them and sell the other 99 cargoes at the higher spot price. Your binding long-term contract is the first one you drop, if the price has gone up. Meanwhile the enforcement mechanism is not that strong. Here is an anecdote about an any delivery in December 2020. The Italian company said it would deliver only part of its LNG shipment for the following month, explaining that an unnamed supplier had failed to make its own delivery. In fact, say people with knowledge of the situation, a team of lawyers had earlier told Azimani that Pakistan was a marginal customer, shortchanging it wouldn't risk a blacklisting by a major importer. Meanwhile, an early winter cold snap was pushing up gas demand in East Asia. From November 2020 to January 2021, Spot prices would jump more than 400%, increasing the value of a shipment from about $20 million to $100 million or more, as long as it was sold to a spot buyer. Pakistan's agreement stipulated that in the event of a missed or partial shipment, any would pay a penalty equal to 30% of the value of the undelivered cargo, calculated on the basis of the long-term contract. While richer importers can demand compensation of as much as 100%, that was the stiffest fine Pakistan could get suppliers to accept, says Imran Manyar, the managing director of distributor Suai Southern Gas Company propose anything higher, he says, and people don't really want that in the clause. In this case the penalty amounted to just $2.8 million, pocket change in the energy business. Under the terms of any's contract, it didn't have to provide details about the supplier default. But even after telling Pakistan it lacks sufficient gas to meet its commitments, according to a person with direct knowledge of the transaction, any sold an LNG shipment elsewhere at the spot price of roughly $100 million. If prices have jumped 400%, and you pay a penalty of 30% of the contract price to skip a delivery, then you have the choice of selling under the contract for $100 or selling in the spot market for $500 and paying a $30 penalty, for a net of $470 you pay the penalty. Whereas in listed commodity markets, the clearinghouse enforced norm is that you pay the buyer, not 30% or even 100% of the contract price, but 100% of the spot price, you pay them $500, which they use to go get the commodity at the current price. Also bad move by Pakistan here. In Islamabad, Pakistani officials had concluded Gunvor was looking for a way to prematurely end the contract which had been due to expire in July. Seeking to cut their losses, they figured they should try to recoup about $10 million they believed the company owed them as a result of a separate dispute over port fees. Pakistan therefore reduced its payment for Gunvor's February 2022 LNG shipment by the same amount. The officials had inadvertently given Gunvor an even cleaner exit. Pakistan soon received a letter from Gunvor's lawyers demanding the rest of the money. It refused to pay. About a week later, with gas prices in Europe near an all-time high, Gunvor gave notice that it was terminating the contract. The company was within its rights to cancel the deal. But LNG agreements worth hundreds of millions of dollars aren't usually scrapped over a single payment dispute, or so quickly. No no no, this agreement wasn't scrapped over a single payment dispute. It was scrapped over, the price went up. 
Pakistan held back the $10 million thinking that this was a commercial contract that was part of a long-term relationship where everyone was trying to get the best result. But actually it was a trade, and the price had moved against Convor, and if you gave it an excuse to get out of the trade it would. And it did. Credit Suisse Retention Clawback A week before Credit Suisse Group AG collapsed and was taken over by UBS Group AG, it was desperately trying to hold on to its employees, it was trying to avoid collapse, and if the good employees all left it would definitely collapse, so it would do anything to keep them. It collapsed anyway. A week after Credit Suisse collapsed and was taken over by UBS, it was, uh, pretty keen to get rid of all of the employees? Like UBS pretty immediately signaled we are going to fire most of Credit Suisse, and then it set to work doing that. Losing tons of Credit Suisse employees now wouldn't sink the combined company, since there are so many UBS people left. If anyone wants to leave voluntarily, hey great that's super, saves UBS some effort. The problem is that the pre-collapse Credit Suisse gave employees gobs of money to keep them, and then it collapsed, and they left, and the post-collapse Credit Suisse would rather have the money back. UBS Group AG has stepped up an effort to recoup hundreds of millions in cash bonuses that Credit Suisse paid to retain dealmakers before the lenders collapse. UBS has contacted hundreds of bankers and offered some multi-year payment plans amid efforts to claw back a chunk of the 1.2 billion Swiss francs, $1.38 billion, in restricted cash bonuses, known internally as upfront cash awards, according to people familiar with the matter and documents seen by Bloomberg News. The bank awarded cash bonuses with strings attached to thousands of managing directors and directors in early 2022 as well as this year in an effort to cushion the blow of a bonus pool shrinking amid the bank's struggles. Then the bank saw a flood of departures. Deferred awards are typically given in restricted shares that the bank can just cancel. But to retain talent amid multiple restructurings and a slumping stock price, Credit Suisse handed out cash with a clause requiring employees to repay some of the bonus if they left the firm within three years. If a bank says to an employee we'll give you $1 million to stay, but we'll pay it out in three years, then the employee is taking the bank's credit risk. If the bank says to an employee we'll give you $1 million to stay, and we'll pay it out now, but if you leave within three years you have to pay us back, then the bank is taking the employee's credit risk. By the end, at Credit Suisse, its employees were apparently a better bet than it was. But not a risk-free bet. Shohei Otani Speaking of the credit risk of deferred comp. This past weekend, extremely good baseball player Shohei Otani signed a 10-year, $700 million contract to play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. This has become a major item of financial news because, 1, sports and, 2, the contract is weird. Otani will actually be paid $2 million a year for the 10 years that he plays for the Dodgers, and will then get $68 million a year for the following 10 years, starting in 2034, when he does not play for them. The reason for this, as far as I can tell, is basically to free up more money now for the Dodgers to spend on other good players, so that they can be good and win the World Series while Otani plays for them. After that, they can just write him huge checks for a decade and have less money to spend on good players, but he won't be there anymore, and probably the executives who signed him won't be there anymore, they'll retire after winning all those World Series, so whatever. This is a well-known form of calculation in the financial world, so much so that it has its own initialism, IBGEB, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. A secondary reason is I guess that Otani will be earning $2 million a year while living in California and paying high taxes, and then he will be earning $68 million a year when he no longer needs to live in California and can pay low taxes. 
one reader suggested to me that California should try to tax him now on the unrealized upfront value of his contract. Hey. A possible third reason is, you know, people seem to like having large headline contract values. Winning a World Series is nice, but winning the game of getting paid the most also seems to be important. Structuring the contract in this way allows the Dodgers to pay a large headline number at a discounted price, which probably makes everyone happy. Anyway, there are various interesting things to say about this contract as a bet on inflation and interest rates and taxes, but my colleague John Authors already said them, so I will refer you to his column. But a number of readers have asked me about the credit risk of the contract. Substantially all of Otani's money comes in the form of payments from the Dodgers 10 to 20 years from now, and what if they default? What if they don't make enough money to pay him? What if he retires in 2034, they have no money to spend on good players, because they are paying him, and they can't sell enough tickets to pay his deferred comp? I don't have a great answer. Major League Baseball, and its players, have definitely thought about this. The current collective bargaining agreement has a provision, Article 16, covering deferred compensation, which provides that deferred compensation must be fully funded by the club in an amount equal to the present value of the total deferred compensation amount, within two years after it was earned. In Otani's case I think this means that the Dodgers have to fund roughly $46 million a year starting in 2026. Fund means that the Dodgers have to set aside unencumbered assets comprising cash or cash equivalents and or registered and unrestricted readily marketable securities that are exclusively for the uses and purposes of satisfying the deferred compensation obligation. So while he is playing, they will need to put aside money to pay him, and I suppose if they don't he can go find a higher, or, lower but more creditworthy, bidder. On the other hand the CBA does not require the money to be held in escrow for him, it's just money on the Dodgers balance sheet, subject to the claims of the club's general creditors. Though perhaps his contract has stricter terms. Otherwise, Otani's bet is something like if the Dodgers set aside the money for me, I'll probably get it because it's not like baseball teams have a ton of liabilities other than deferred cop, so even if they go bankrupt I'll be the main claimant on that pot of money. Which is, you know, probably fine. Not ironclad? Not necessarily a calculation that I would bet half a billion dollars on but I am, for a great many reasons, not a successful professional athlete. How would you hedge this risk? You can't really short a baseball team, or buy credit default swaps. You could buy index credit default swaps to hedge against widespread credit defaults, but that's not really what you want. The bad state of the world here is not so much a lot of malls go bankrupt as it is baseball stops being popular in the US. If I were him I'd buy, like, Manchester United stock as a hedge. Also the other obvious question here is, what if Otani would like to live on more than $2 million a year, now? Sure it is nice to have a $680 million nest egg for retirement but he is a famous successful baseball player, shouldn't he be having more than $2 million worth of fun now? I wonder if he can get a bank to lend him money against that $680 million? Maybe the bank can figure out the credit risk. Oh Elon. The situation is roughly. In April 2022, Elon Musk signed a binding merger agreement to buy Twitter Incorporated for $54.20 per share. In May 2022, he changed his mind, decided he was overpaying, and started tweeting some nonsense about how the deal was temporarily on hold because Twitter had too many spam-slash-fake accounts. In July, he sent Twitter a notice that he was terminating the deal. 
this was all nonsense, as everyone knew. Temporarily on hold is not a thing, I wrote. I think it is important to be clear here that Musk is lying, I wrote, about the spam bots. In our actual universe none of this is true, I wrote, about his whole theory. Just absolute nonsense. Twitter sued Musk to enforce the deal, there was a lot of blustering, but eventually Musk's lawyers convinced him it would be embarrassing to argue this nonsense in court and he gave up, buying Twitter in October 2022 for the original price of $54.20 per share. Then he renamed it X Corp. And there has been much additional nonsense that I will not get into here. So here's a question. In May 2022, when Elon Musk started tweeting nonsense about how he was canceling the deal for spam bots, was that securities fraud? There are arguments both ways. On the one hand, everything is securities fraud, I keep saying around here. He was tweeting false statements about a public company. The stock did go down. Twitter's stock fell 9.7%, from $45.08 to $40.72, the day Musk tweeted temporarily on hold. It closed as low as $32.65 in July. If you bought the stock in the low dollar $50s in early May, because Musk had signed a deal to buy it for $54.20, and then sold it in the low dollar $30s in July, because Musk was saying that he would get out of the deal, you really were deceived, he was not getting out of the deal, and you did lose money. On the other hand, it's a weird form of securities fraud. At the time he did these tweets, Musk really did have a binding contract to buy every share of Twitter at $54.20 per share, and he ended up doing that. His false tweets didn't make him any money. It's not like he was short Twitter and profited when its price crashed. He was long Twitter and this all ended up just being a costly nuisance for him. Still, you could argue that he had an economic motive to tank the stock. The motive is that he was trying to renegotiate the deal, he knew he was overpaying for Twitter, and he was hoping that, by threatening to walk away from the deal, he could convince Twitter's board to agree to sell to him at a lower price. The noisier he was about walking away, the more that threat would feel real. And the more the price fell, the scarier the threat would be, Twitter's board could look at the stock at $32.65 per share and say, 1, the market thinks he might get out of this and, 2, if he does get out of it the stock will really tank, so, 3, it would be a good idea for us to sign a new ironclad deal at $45. And then he'd save some money. By manipulating the stock, he could save himself billions of dollars in a renegotiated deal. Anyway some Twitter shareholders did sue Musk, claiming that he committed securities fraud by making multiple misstatements to artificially depress the price of Twitter stock and to pressure Twitter to lower the price defendant would have to pay to acquire it. He filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit, and on Monday a federal judge partly denied that motion, letting the lawsuit go forward. Here is the judge's opinion, finding that the shareholders have made a case that several of Musk's tweets were false or misleading, that he had the motive and opportunity to commit the fraud to get out of the merger agreement because of the large price decline of Tesla stock and the realization that he had greatly overpaid for Twitter by agreeing to buy it shortly before a significant market decline, and that the shareholders lost money due to his fraud by selling at depressed prices during the nonsense. I guess that's all reasonable. The judge does find that some of Musk's statements aren't fraud. For instance, Musk's lawyers sent various letters to Twitter terminating the deal, those letters were also mostly nonsense, and the shareholders argue that they were fraud. 
The judge disagrees. Plaintiffs do not adequately specify which statements within the various letters are misleading or state the reason or reasons why they are. Plaintiffs also generally allege that defendants' motive in sending letters requesting data was to create uncertainty and the requests were a ruse, but, again, plaintiffs do not point to an objectively verifiable affirmative statement or misleading omission. The court is not convinced that defendants' entry into a legal dispute with Twitter, and statements made in support thereof, create an impression of a state of affairs that differs in a material way from the one that actually exists. This also seems right to me. It would be odd to find that it's fraud to fight Twitter in court. Musk fought Twitter in court, and the stakes were that if he won he wouldn't have to buy Twitter and if he lost he would. He lost. Along the way, Twitter stockholders made bets on whether he'd win or lose, they sold stock thinking he'd win, or bought it thinking he'd lose. If they were wrong, if they overestimated his chances of winning, because of the arguments that he made, which sounded good but were not, then they lost money but it seems odd for them to sue him for making those arguments. He was doing the best he could to win in court, it's not his problem if people believed him. Still there is a tension here. If Musk files a legal document saying too many bots, that's not securities fraud. If he sends a tweet saying too many bots, that is. Musk does most of his litigation on Twitter, so it is strange to draw this distinction. Possibly the answer is don't do your litigation on Twitter. Also I should say that the judge goes through several of Musk's bad tweets, concludes that some of them are plausibly false and misleading and thus can support a lawsuit, but also concludes that some are not. For instance, the May 13, 2022, temporarily on hold tweet can be securities fraud. But on May 16, 2022, Twitter's then chief executive officer, Parag Agrawal, tweeted a measured and sensible explanation of how Twitter estimates bot accounts, and defendant responded with a tweet of a poop emoji. That poop emoji has already had a long legal career, it was in Twitter's complaint to force Musk to close the deal, and it's in this case too, but apparently it is not securities fraud. The moon emoji is securities fraud, the poop emoji is not, modern finance is amazing. Flow. Arguably Adam Newman has two valuable and largely unrelated skills. He's a pretty good real estate guy in the sense that he is good at acquiring buildings, making them nice places to live or work in, and finding tenants who will pay to rent them. He has some sort of Jedi mind trick power where he can walk into a room full of venture capitalists, tell them about his real estate company, and have them say you are a tech visionary, take all of our money. Like there are plenty of cases of people who pitch bad tech company ideas to venture capitalists, and get funded, and blow up. But Newman's chick seems to be that he pitches good real estate companies to venture capitalists, and gets lavishly overfunded, and, well, he blew up once, but who knows. Anyway here is a funny Business Insider article about Flo, Newman's secretive billion-dollar startup to turn apartment living into a utopian fantasy. The basic points of the article are, 1. Flo runs a nice apartment building. Since Newman took over, maintenance has cleaned common areas more frequently, a poolside restaurant has reopened, more security has been added, and the gym has been overhauled with new equipment and classes. Instead of a lone uniformed doorman, at Society Los Olas you're greeted by five bright, friendly faces manning the so-called resident experience lounge. In most buildings, tenants receive a take-it-or-leave-it notice at a legally mandated date before their lease is up informing them of their new rate. Flow's managers find that cold and impersonal. Its staffers want a more customized approach, like inviting tenants to coffee months in advance to discuss areas the building could improve on. 
and, two, there is a lot of blather about being a tech company that doesn't seem all that real, but that induces venture capitalists to write large checks. Newman started Flow in the summer of 2022 after landing a $350 million check from Andresen Horowitz, better known as A16Z, one of Silicon Valley's most prestigious venture firms. It was the single largest investment in the firm's history, instantly making Flow worth a billion dollars on paper. A16Z's funding announcement praised Newman as a visionary leader and was full of soaring rhetoric about solving America's housing crisis and removing the soullessness of apartments. Absent were specifics of how Flow would actually accomplish these lofty goals. Based on the early accounts of Flow, you might have expected a radically new way of living. There was talk of crypto wallets and a rent-to-own model through which residents could build equity. Neither is happening anytime soon. Love it. Arguably the basic business model of WeWork was that Adam Newman took $14 billion of SoftBank Group Corporation's money, gave $13 billion of it to companies to subsidize their office rent and happy hours, and kept $1 billion of it for himself. Not bad. But if the basic business model of flow is that Adam Newman will take hundreds of millions of dollars of Andres and Horowitz's money, give most of it to 20-somethings to subsidize their apartment rents and happy hours, and keep a few buildings for himself, then how could anyone object to that? I just hope he'll scale it up rapidly and go back to SoftBank for more money. Elsewhere in selling real estate visions to tech investors. Does Newman overcomplicate things? Is it simpler to just go to tech investors and say hello, I am building a new city where everyone will be either a tech founder or a model, and nobody will be ugly or poor, doesn't that sound nice, give me some money? Here is a New York Times story about a guy named Dryden Brown, who has raised money from investors including Paradigm and Sam Altman for his company. Praxis, which has an ambitious goal, to create a new city on the Mediterranean, with stuff like this. An internal Praxis branding guide, denounces enemies of vitality, who reject what they consider the optional European beauty standards. It goes on to extol traditional, European-slash-Western beauty standards on which the civilized world, at its best points, has always found success. According to several former Praxis employees who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they signed non-disclosure agreements, Mr. Brown had discussed wanting to attract tech talent to his city by introducing founders to hot girls. Internal Praxis documents outline three persona groups who will populate the Praxis city. They are warriors, who are muscular and clean and protect society from threats, priests, who are very thin, and define the values and beliefs of society and merchants, who are portly and bearded, and include venture capitalists and cryptocurrency professionals. Exposed to the classics by his tutor, Mr. Brown read Ayn Rand and the Austrian economists in high school is one of the nicer things that the article has to say about him. Martin Shkreli is apparently a member. Things happen. World Central Bank's signal victory over inflation is in sight. Wall Street traders go all in on great monetary pivot of 2024. Local currency debt is now the biggest drain on many developing countries' balance sheets. Hedge funds to get new SEC mandate to centrally clear U.S. Treasury's trades. The Moneyball firm behind your chicken. Wall Street makes zero progress in energy finance transition. Billionaire Jimmy Haslam is being investigated over pilot payments, lawyer says. Amazon wins in tax battle with European Commission. BP docs former CEO Bernard Looney as much as $40 million over serious misconduct. Credit Suisse disbands China onshore wealth unit, dozens depart. The economics of small U.S. colleges are faltering. Elon Musk is planning a new university in Austin. For three years, as the denizens of the Melrose Place apartment complex loved, lost, and betrayed one another, 
the gala committee smuggled subversive leftist art onto the set, experimenting with a relationship between art, artist, and spectator. How to brag about work, even if it's not going great. Blackstone Channel's Taylor Swift in new holiday video. If you'd like to get money stuff in handy email form, right in your inbox, please subscribe at this link. Or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks. This is a little loose. Really you pay them the spot price minus the contract price, $400, in this toy example, which they then use to buy the commodity at the current price, $500, using $100 of their own money, so that their cost is effectively the contract price. If it says we'll give you $1 million to stay, in stock at today's price, and we'll deliver in three years, then the employee is taking the bank's equity risk, which is, you know, riskier. That is, in 2024 Otani will earn $68 million payable in 2034, and they'll have to fund that in 2026. And in 2025, he'll earn another $68 million payable in 2034, funded in 2027, etc. The funding obligation is the present value of the deferred comp. The discount rate specified in the contract is 5% per year, though it can go up if rates are higher. So 68 slash 1.058 equals 46. I have no idea what the actual enforcement mechanism is here, or if he can get out if they don't fund it, or if he can sue to force them to fund it, etc. See, this is why my reader thinks California should tax the unrealized amount. It arguably creates spending power now.